I think for nonprofit institutions, it is critical to communicate constantly with your donors, your stakeholders, your friends, the people that you care about, and the people that care about you. Inform, inspire, and evolve. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind. Join host Lindsay Simons in a friendly conversation about contributing to good as we bring together community, positivity, and energy to the business of generosity. Welcome your host, Lindsay Simons. Welcome everybody to the podcast, Creating Community for Good. I'm excited about today's conversation for multiple reasons. Chief among them is that I get to introduce to you one of my most valued mentors and friends in the space of philanthropy. This man shaped my way of thinking about consulting, fundraising, board management, and communications at large. It's his solution-based mindset paired with over three decades of experience that clients are drawn to, but it's the style of positivity, confidence, discipline, and always humor that make him a joy to work with. He's an avid reader, loyal baseball fan, a formidable movie buff, and ultimately a family man with three awesome children and a beautiful wife. Allow for me to introduce to you CCS Fundraising's Principal and Managing Director, Rick Happy. Rick, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Lindsay. That's wonderful. I'm gonna, uh, I really appreciate the introduction, and I've just tasked you to do my eulogy when I die. <laughs> Nicest introduction I've ever had, so thank, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be yeah. part of the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Just as some more context for the listeners, I worked with Rick for many years at CCS, better part of a decade, and... I learned a lot from him, so I'm, I'm really thrilled to have him on to share his way of thinking, and it will uh, reflect how it's informed my way of thinking also over the years. So as you know, this podcast is all about how humans come together and create somewhat of a better place. So we all do it differently. Some of us have dedicated our careers to service, frontline, others are loyal donors, and then you are one of the leading voices in space of fundraising strategy, capital campaign management consulting. So today, what I want to talk about is this very timely topic of philanthropy during time of crisis. You ready to jump in? I am ready. All right, great. So Rick, you and CCS responded to the national crisis of COVID-19, the government's mandate to shelter in place immediately. You were some of the first to jump in the space to do a webinar with free counsel and specific action items for anybody in the space of philanthropy. Since then, CCS, I've seen newsletters, I've seen podcasts, I've seen webinars weekly. Distilled to me, and I'll include all of those in our show notes. So for anybody who wants to go deeper in the dive, we can absolutely do that. It's all on CCS's website, which is ccsfundraising.com. But for me now, Rick, just distill, what are a few of the key takeaways that we should be, that we should all be thinking about during this global crisis? Yeah, thanks, Linz. I think that we... What we've been saying to our clients and friends since this has started are, are several things. And I would say we want to be mindful that the, the landscape is changing on a pretty regular basis. So we have to amend our counsel and we've got to, you know, what we may have been saying six or eight weeks ago is different today. But there are some really, I think, key takeaways. One is, I think for nonprofit institutions, it is critical to communicate constantly with your donors, your stakeholders your friends, the people that you care about, and the people that care about you. And we think that the communication, it's got to be led with empathy. I think that's a really important part of all this, that we're, um, you're reaching out to your donors, your board members, your, your stakeholders, your, how are you doing? How's everything going? This is a difficult time. We understand that. I just want to touch base with you. And what we're hearing is that 
the stakeholders really appreciate that. They really appreciate that the institutions care enough to reach out to them. And what we also know is that the stakeholders and donors, they care about the institutions. They want to know how the institution is doing. You know, how is the school doing during this really difficult time? How are you delivering classes online? How is the symphony doing while it's shuttered right now? How are the musicians doing? How are you taking care of your employees? So it's really a two-way street around that. We've said to folks, you know, you want to be careful about being tone deaf. You know, I think from the first few weeks of the crisis, we were quick to say to our clients, don't ask people for money right now. Just talk to them about, just connect with them. Just be in communication with them. And the empathy piece is, is, is an important part of this too, because, you know, people's lives have been upended. You know, you have people, we I had an email yesterday from someone who works with our, one of our clients and had asked that we send some of the materials. She wasn't able to join a webinar and she said, you know, I have two young kids and I'm homeschooling them. So I'm trying to do my job. I'm trying to homeschool my kids. My husband is trying to help and he has his job. And so we want to make sure that we're empathetic to that too, that this has really been, you know, it's easy for me to say to clients, you know, you're the director of development or you're the VP of development or you're the principal gifts officer, get on the phone and call all these donors. Mm. And they say, wait a second, you know, I've got other responsibilities here and I, I have to manage all those things. So it's important too, to know that this has really been sort of a once in a century, certainly pandemic since the mm. Spanish flu. But for us, it's been a time that really everyone's lives have been upended and some more so than others. But communicate, be empathetic, don't be tone deaf, and don't worry about over-communicating because the donors and stakeholders want to hear from you. Well, that's a good point to not worry about over-communicating. I've been getting a lot of questions. How much should I be communicating? How much is too much? Are you getting flooded with emails? What are you seeing as sort of a regular or appropriate amount of contact? Well, we did a survey of our uh, clients and friends last week. And and we heard from about 700 people. And I'll send you the deck, Lindsay. It's Bob Kassane, our chairman, Mm -hmm. and Pete Hoskow, one of our partners, and Miriam Joller, another one of our partners. They kind of walk through this the survey and the results. And we asked people, you know, what's the, what's been the best way for you to, most effective way for you to communicate. And I was relieved by the answer because this is what I've been telling people, but personal phone calls. Oh, interesting. Uh, Yeah. Virtual calls and then virtual briefings so that, you know, your UCSF has done a great job with their grand rounds on YouTube every week. Mm. They've done virtual briefings with groups of donors and friends and California Pacific Medical Center, which is one of our current clients has been doing that. The board chair of the foundation has been doing YouTube addresses to the board and to donors. And it's been really great. I've actually caught uh, council folks away from overdoing it. And I've been guilty of it too. So I'm mindful of this, but overdoing it on the email because we are getting flooded with emails. And I do think that there's a little bit of an elevated pressure on people that I know you're at home. I know you have your computer on. How come you haven't responded to my email? Totally. You know, account that, you know, you could be on three webinars and podcasts and, you know, you're dealing with other things. But I think the, the, the best form has been the virtual outreach and the personal connection via phone and to not overdo it actually via email. Yeah. Well, that's a great point. I like the idea of just doing a regular standing briefing that may be 30 minutes for your clients or that your client's providing to the donors and volunteers, you can opt on or off, but it's something that they're used to seeing because even just an email, hey, remember, we're going to do this. Remember, this is coming up. It's going back to your point of just flooding the inboxes. So that's a great tip. I like that. So you mentioned the Spanish flu. 
I want to go a little bit closer to modern history, 2008. (laughs) (laughs) So fish flu is also interesting. But as you may recall, Rick, the first time you and I met was in San Francisco in the summer of 2008. And then we had a great interview and conversation with Pete Haskow and you, and I was thrilled about CCS. We talked about Hawaii, then bam, the world changed with a couple of months, the economy had crashed and philanthropy was changed forever. So you've been a philanthropic advisor for 33 plus years and 2008 was an exceptional time. What other times in history are like that and how is it different today versus some of those moments in time? You know, it's Lindsay, it's, I remember, you know, when we met and I, it's funny, the days that you remember exactly where you were when certain things happened. Yes. And we had a partners meeting at CCS the week that Lehman Brothers crashed. I think it was September 15th of 2008. And we had a partners meeting on September 18th, which was a Thursday. Mm-hmm. And then we had an Eastern kind of an all East Coast seminar on the 19th. And I remember thinking to myself, this is going to be bad. You know, this is this is not good. And I'm thinking about like, we're still doing the things we're going to be doing, but this is going to be, we're, we're going to be in for a rough ride here. And the last time I flew before the pandemic was really during it, I'm sort of sad to say was March 11th. And I was flying back from Denver to California and I was on the plane and it was the night that the NBA canceled the season and Tom Hanks came out and said he had COVID. And I remember thinking to myself, this is kind of like the day Lehman Brothers crashed. Like, this is the beginning. And I think there's some great parallels to that. I think after 9-11, we had some other parallels as well. The stock market crashed severely in 1987. I've been at CCS for like a year. I think this is different in the following ways. This is a public health crisis. As of today, more than 70,000 Americans have died. We have, I think, 1.3 million cases, more than a quarter million people around the world. So there's a public health crisis aspect of this. There is now going to be the economic crisis that we're in. And the third part of this, which was partly true in the Great Recession, but I think is much more true now, is the uncertainty of all of this. As you and I were talking a little bit before the podcast, we don't know how this is going to play out in the weeks and the months and the years ahead, given the public health aspect of this. But I'm optimistic about a number of things. I listened to Warren Buffett over the weekend, and he was talking about you know his they had they had to do virtually his annual meeting in Omaha, and he talked about his great faith in America over the long term. And I think from the Great Recession, we learned a number of things. One is, I mean, we did think that, oh my God, this is the end, like the stock market is crashing. And sure enough, the stock market went from a high of 14,000 in November of 2007 to a low of 6,600 in March of 2009. Well, it's at 23 1,500 today or almost 24,000, it's going to probably go down. I'm sure it will as the unemployment numbers continue to tick up. But I think that over time, we will eventually come back to what will be a new normal. What the, these, the, the two last crises, the Great Recession and before that 9-11 taught us mm-hmm. are a couple of things. Nonprofit organizations that stayed the course, kept their stakeholders engaged, focused on both the short term and the long term, ultimately emerged successfully in better position for the future. We even have specific data on this from the work we did when you joined us in 2008 to 2010. Now, they were flexible. Organizations were flexible. They adjusted their annual financial goals. They had campaigns, those goals. They uh, were constantly evaluating them. They gave their donors more leeway around payment terms. 
They often were flexible in lengthening timelines. What we learned during that crisis is something we also know about writ large with donors. People who stop supporting specific nonprofits during or after a crisis usually do so because they don't feel personally connected. Mm. Now, the client survey I referred to earlier, 16% of the clients we surveyed said they were going to delay, postpone, or pause their campaign fundraising plans. Now, that's a not a huge number. 84% they said they were either going to continue, modify, or they were still under review. Probably we'll end up seeing 20 or 25% of organizations put a pause or a delay. That's a mistake. And it's a mistake because it signals to donors that you're not sure of where you're going and what your priorities are. So when you started in 2008, we, were, we had really just been underway for probably six or nine months working with UCSF Medical Center on their campaigns to build the new hospitals in Mission Bay, the project that you ultimately worked on with CCS. And the financial crisis hit and you know everybody was frozen solid. It, it felt like around the country. Nobody at UCSF flinched. Nobody at UCSF said, you know, we should pause. Maybe we should delay. Maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe we should wait a couple of years and see how things shake out. Nobody paused. And because the leadership at UCSF was so disciplined and so strong about moving forward, they have these unbelievable new facilities in San Francisco now that are helping treat this problem right now. And if they had said, we're not going to go forward. We're going to stop. They wouldn't have these new facilities. And so that kind of leadership, that kind of unflinching leadership in the time of crisis really paid off, not just in terms of financially, they were able to raise money or successfully, they were able to build the hospitals. No, they built these hospitals to care for these patients during this really critical time. So it's a good lesson in terms of, you know, having really unflinching leadership And this is a crisis that we don't know what the outcome is going to be. But I do know that those institutions that are dedicated to their mission, that are dedicated to their donors, that are dedicated to what their their vision is, will ultimately be rewarded. It's going to be a long time. This is going to be a long process. This is not going to be over in July. It's not going to be over in September. We've got to gird ourselves for that. But I remain more convinced than ever, especially because of 9-11 and the Great Recession, that we will ultimately reemerge from this. I love that story. That's it's the full life cycle of the vision to the actualization through crisis, and then coming up ahead to serve the population at the most critical time. So it makes me wonder about what full life cycle stories could we be telling for other nonprofits that are not first responders. So obviously, there's a lot of talk from the arts and the schools and nature conservation, they're all wondering how do we become front of mind for our donors when we're not handling the crisis immediately. So Mm -hmm. to me, it seems like it's thinking about that whole life cycle and what's the implication if we pause today, five years from now, and, and don't you have conviction in your mission today? So what do you think about that? Like, how are you recommending go forward plans? And Yeah, what's really uh, upended everything with this crisis and has surprised me is that what we what we learned in the, the financial crisis in the past was institutions like that have built-in audiences that have loyal audiences, you know, strong boards tend to be better protected in a time yeah. like this. And that could be a symphony, that could be a hospital with grateful patients. That's certainly schools and colleges and universities. That's certainly religious organizations. A lot of that's been thrown to the winds here because you have religious entities, houses of worship that aren't receiving much money 
during this crisis and that are really suffering. Mm. You have all the arts organizations are shuttered. You know, they are, you know, whether that's symphonies, museums, ballets, operas, it is really, really a difficult place for them. And the schools, the colleges, universities, they're also going to be struggling because they're going to see some declines in enrollment. Certainly there'll be some declines in fundraising, but there's going to be some skittishness around, you know, are we going to invest in education during such a difficult time? So it's really hit a lot of the sectors. Also, Lindsay, what's amazing to me is the hospitals in California have done such a great job preparing for this. And not just California, but other places around the country. But done such a great job preparing for this and they were so ready for this that they it's actually hurt their bottom line because they've oh. deferred elective surgeries, all non-essential kind of surgeries that you know people had planned for. And those are surgeries that really are helpful to a hospital's revenue stream. And I also think that people are probably less inclined to go to the hospital today. Totally. Which I think is probably not uh, rational because the hospital is a pretty safe place, but you know you have people who are just like you know what I'm, I'll take care of this myself. So yeah. even hospitals that are on the front lines of this battle are facing deep, deep revenue challenges. So for all of them, just think about the arts in particular, because mm. your question was about you know how do you tell the story if you're a museum? How do you tell the story of your symphony? And I happen to believe that great cities, great towns, great regions have really strong continue to attract kind of you know great jobs great companies great people to where you are you having strong arts is often overlooked sort of by the general populace but having strong arts is critical to the health and the civic fabric of a region and i think that that's a really important story for those institutions to tell and we have clients right now, I don't want to name any of them, but we have clients right now that are doing a really good job telling that story. They're being empathetic. And, you know, they're saying to their board members and their donors, yes, you know, responding to COVID-19 financially is important. You should do that. We're also going to need some help. We've got some long-term plans. We are not going away. We, we may have furloughed some staff. We may have delayed some exhibits or some exhibitions, but we have a long-term plan in place. And so I think that's, sort of the key messages is that the, what is the value in your community for those places? You know, the, the irony of the Great Recession and COVID-19 is the organizations that quote unquote benefit from this, and I hate to use that term, are those that you, you know, organizations like food banks. And we should be doing a better job supporting those organizations when the times are good. And unfortunately, we don't, we don't, and we support them when the times are bad. And I think what we see upended is we may not support arts institutions when the times are bad. We'll support them when the times are good. We have to kind of level that out and figure out a way to do that. I wonder what the way would be. I mean, I suppose all of it goes back to the art and science of fundraising. Some of it is just pure art and its relationship management. I also think that this is true, Lindsay, that we now have had three crises in 20 years. You had 9-11, you had the Great Recession, you have this. We'll have another crisis in 10 years. Maybe five years, maybe 15 years, there will be another crisis. So what we are starting to say to people is to even things out. Yeah, you have to build your endowment. You also have to build a reserve fund. You have to build a reserve fund and that that you're not going to keep in the stock market necessarily, but it's going to be probably in bonds and it's going to probably have low returns. So when the next crisis hits, you don't have to lay off or furlough workers. You don't have to lay off or furlough those high value employees. You don't have to shut your doors necessarily. You're ready for this. 
the Hewlett Foundation, Larry Kramer, the president, had wrote a letter in March about this subject. And I encourage people to, to read it. They did a great job planning for the next crisis because of what happened in the Great Recession. He said that after the Great Recession, the board and leadership of the Hewlett Foundation vowed to themselves never again that they were going to have to go back to grantees and say, we're going to have to cut your grants or we're not going to be able to fulfill the grant next year or the year after. We're going to be ready for the next crisis. We're going to build reserves. The way we grant, we're going to do it a lot more efficiently and we're going to make sure that we don't end up where we were then the next time. And the next time's now and they're better positioned. So to your point, we have to, and this is for companies like CCS and yours and nonprofit fundraisers and nonprofit leaders, we have to take a longer term approach. We've got to build reserves. We've got to prepare for the next crisis. We have to treat our food banks well during the good times and treat our arts institutions well during the poor times, the difficult times. And we have to message that much more overtly. And we're finding that we have to do a better job with donor advised funds. You know, mm. what's the picture of donor advised funds? There's $120 billion in donor advised funds at the end of 2018. How are those funds today being expended? A great guy that I met several years ago named David Risher founded an organization called World Reader. And David is a former Microsoft and Amazon executive, World Readers and iPads in the hands of children in developing countries so that they have access to books the same way the kids in developed countries do. And the organization has done fabulous work. And yesterday, David and his wife issued a challenge to, and it's called half, uh, I think it was half the death. And we put it all over social media. That they, would, they would match gifts that if people would give them up to $10,000 to $50,000 from their donor advised funds. So we have to do a better job with donor advised funds. And we have to do a better job of messaging that, you know, when the times are good, We've got to elevate philanthropy. It can't stay tied to gross domestic product, ticking up slowly, slowly, slowly every year, maybe ticking down a little bit this year and next year because of what we're about to encounter. We've got to do a better job elevating that. Yeah, I I saw that post and I loved it. I guess the essence is just like in fundraising, doing matching, doing challenges, looking at people who are of influence and calling on them to lead the way and making changes. So I love that message. and. One of the posts that I wrote early on during this crisis was, crisis, what crisis? And my thought was not to be cavalier, but hey, let's flip this on its head. We do need to be planning ahead now and in the good years. So I like what you're saying. I also feel very strongly about how important it is to not look at the overhead as a limiting factor of nonprofits because part of the overhead is going to be probably reserves and making sure that you're recruiting and retaining the talent who have this long-minded approach so they're not turning over every 18 months as we you see know, in the nonprofit space. That is such an important point. Now, the survey I've, I've referred to a couple of times, we did see that only 15% of the organizations that responded to the survey said they had, were they had furloughed or laid off some fundraising staff. Oh, that was, good. That's a low percentage. Yeah, that was better than I thought. And, you know, we have a lot of data around why it is much more valuable for you as an organization to retain fundraising staff than it is to turn over fundraising staff. Mm. The cost to identify new talent, the cost to recruit that talent, to train that talent, supervise that talent, to retain, again, retain it. That is, it is much more costly for you as an organization to lay people off and hire people in the future than it is to keep your good people in place. And that's a message that's often lost. You know, if you said, you know, it's going to cost us a trillion dollars to come up with a vaccine 
for COVID-19 that we could do tomorrow, we'd raise a trillion dollars. You know, we would, and nobody would say one word about how much is going to cost us to raise this money or how much are we going to get from the government or any of those kinds of things, because getting that vaccine is the most important thing. Well, that should apply across the board too. That should apply to organizations that are raising money for, and Dan Pallotta does a great, you know, great TED talk and all this, but that should be across the board that, you know, if your mission is to cure cancer, yeah, the cost per dollar is important, but not as important as how much money you need, you need to raise to do that. Mm-hmm. And that I think that I think that applies to all nonprofit sectors that this is about actually fulfilling your mission and solving problems. And it's not about a, a, a cost per dollar raised. Mm-hmm. Ratio. Yeah, I love that. So speaking of costs and dollars, what are we seeing now in terms of how people are responding philanthropically? I think that there's a lot of conversation about you see in the media, big donors making big gifts, but what about the middle class and the lower class? How are they contributing? What are we seeing? So the group Candid, which is a combination of GuideStar and the Foundation Center, they've been tracking this pretty closely. I think they've, they've identified about $8.5 billion has been raised to COVID-19 relief so far. And that's pretty hit or miss. And as you say, that's a lot of big organizations. And that's probably just a smattering even. So we don't have the data right now that tells us about how are you know the, those below the major donor level responding. We do know that 56% of Americans give year in, year out to philanthropy. We do know that after 9-11, 60% of the families in America with incomes of less than $15,000 or more, think about that, gave a gift in support of 9-11. It's pretty incredible. Now, I do worry about your question because we believe that we lost millions of donors during the Great Recession who didn't really return to, to donor landscape. So I worry about, and we're, we are seeing, Lindsay, that, you know, when I started at CCS 100 years ago, it was you, you raise 80% of the money from 20% of the donors in a campaign. Now we're seeing that's 95% of the money from 1% or 2% of the donors mm. or 3 or 4% of the donors. I worry that that's going to become even more pronounced. Um, we are seeing disparities, continued disparities in income. That's a real issue with this. And I worry that in this crisis, are we going to continue like the Great Recession to lose those valuable donors? And if you and I are talking in five or 10 years, will I say that 46% of Americans gave give year in and year out rather than 56% of Americans? So it's a cause for great concern because those that's really kind of, the, again, it's a important part of our civic fabric is philanthropy. And it's not just billionaires and millionaires giving, but it's people from all walks of life who are giving. Yeah, that's a great point. And I guess we'll have to watch and hopefully do our best to keep people engaged and keep people give to people as we've always said, right? So continuing that human connection. So speaking of giving, are you seeing a lot of campaigns still in cultivation mode or are you seeing people starting to open up into solicitations and virtual engagements? What are you seeing? And maybe give me an example of something that's been effective. We're seeing both. I mean, we are seeing that one of the things we've said and we've seen with our client partners doing is asking donors for permission to ask. So that, you know, that that kind of takes away any awkwardness or inappropriateness or any kind of accusations maybe of tone deafness and say, you know, oh, that's a great point. We're in the middle of the campaign. We're really focused on this crisis right now. But we want to talk to you a little bit about the campaign because we think it is so critical to our long-term plans. 
And would it be okay if we talked to you about that? And what we're hearing is people saying, yes, it's fine. Well, let's talk about it. I know this is something that's, that I, I, I'm glad you're talking about the long term because the last couple of months, it's just been, it's just been crisis, crisis, crisis. So that it, it's good to hear. And I think even if people don't want to talk about it, they appreciate being asked to be asked. We're seeing it a couple of ways. People are doing on-screen solicitations and mm-hmm. doing it. it's not as effective as face-to-face. It mm-hmm. isn't. And we all know that. But for some institutions that are in the middle of kind of campaign moments, they don't have any choice and they're doing a good job and they're getting good results. Again, it doesn't replace face-to-face. It doesn't replace, you know, nuances that you pick up in a conversation. You know, we like to say at CCS, you should work in pairs so that if your co-solicitor may pick up a cue or may pick up something that the the person or the people that they're saying, or there could be some physical cues. You don't get that as much in a, in a screen as screen solicitation, so it's not as effective. But we think as a stopgap, it is valuable and it can work. And even phone calls that are structured can be helpful and can work. Again, not as valuable or not as effective as face to face. But as you know, people would do that before there was COVID nineteen. They'd rather do an email or a phone call than a face to face. You know, that's that's all part of life. But I think that what we are seeing is kind of three stages to this. Immediate crisis, stabilization, reemergence. And mm-hmm. I think where we are right now is between immediate crisis and stabilization. We're not yet at reemergence, but we're seeing a lot of that. So we're moving towards stabilization. We've got our plans in place and we are out reaching out to people and asking them to support the campaign. You know, it might be, it may, it may be delayed because of what's happened for the last couple of months, but it's good to see and it's heartening to see that people want to see that long term picture. Yeah, I love that. During the webinar, I guess, I don't even know when it was, when the crisis hit and CCS did the webinar that I already mentioned, one phrase really stuck out to me that you shared or you offered in the first communication. It was something like, people have asked how they can help. And if you're interested, please do X, Y, and Z. And I love that phrase. I just want to reiterate it because it's such a great lubricant, if you will. It's sort of what you're saying now. It's it's just, you know focusing the conversation, but not going head on so that you still sound like you're empathetic and not tone deaf. So this is interesting, Lindsay. I keep referring to the survey that we did. Our clients told us that a third of their donors have said they don't know how to help in the COVID-19 crisis. Yeah. We're hearing that sort of anecdotally to people saying, well, who can I help? What can I do? How do, who do I respond to? Do I respond to my local hospital? Do I give a gift to the NIH or the CDC? Do I give to you know the, the research institution, the academic medical center? Where do I go? And that doesn't surprise me because you know we 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 experienced that not just in the Great Recession, not just 9-11, but Haiti, Hurricane mm. Katrina. Yeah, Katrina, uh, yeah. Even Hurricane Sandy uh, mm. in, on the East Coast. So donors, I, I say to people. Don't presume that your donors know, or you know where they're going to give. They may not know right now. So give them some direction. And I think, you know, if I were at a school or performing arts center, and I talked about this earlier, or another kind of institution, I, I don't see this as a zero-sum game. If, a, if one of my board members or donors said to me, hey, can you give me some advice about how I can support COVID-19 relief? Instead of trying to pivot them to supporting your organization, I would connect them to professional colleagues who work for healthcare institutions or research institutions and make it an easy path for them to support COVID-19. Mm. That's gonna, they're going to appreciate you as a professional. They're going to appreciate your organization. 
and they will support you long-term. And it's the right thing to do too. Mm -hmm. So I think that helping donors navigate this, I think a lot of our development professional colleagues can do that. And it won't be a zero-sum game. It won't be something that they lose and someone else wins. But I think you'd find that both are going to be winners. I love that advice. That's, That's awesome. So Rick, what have I not asked you that I should have asked you? You asked me, you know, I think one of the things you, we could talk about is, and this may be the last thing is, you know, how, how do we think philanthropy is going to be impacted in the coming months and years? Yeah. The easy out is to say, you know, we don't know. It's unknown. I do think that we're going to see in 2020 a decline. I don't think there's any way around that. I think I talked earlier about gross domestic product. And what I mean by that is we've seen over the last 50 or 60 years that philanthropy hues pretty closely to gross domestic product. It's around 2% each year in terms of if the GDP is X, 2% of X is roughly philanthropy in a given year across all sectors in the United States. So there's all kinds of predictions out there about GDP in 2020. Is it, is it going to decline 6%, 8%, 10%, 20%? No one really knows right now. It will decline. I think it's safe to say. So we should prepare ourselves in 2020 to have to see some pretty significant declines. We saw that in 2008, 2009, in the Great Recession. I think we'll see that again in 2021. I think as there's more clarity around this as a, as a, as a health crisis, whether it's therapeutics, vaccines, all those kinds of things, then there'll be some more visibility. I think we do take heart in that in the Great Recession, there were some structural issues with the economy around housing and banks and lending. Those things didn't happen. This was a health crisis that was kind of foisted upon us. So if we can get to some kind of health resolution to this, I think the economy will come back. It always does. It's going to take some time. But I think short term and even longer term, we have to kind of prepare ourselves that philanthropy is not going to decline 50% like it might with the stock market, like the stock market did in the Great Recession, but it will decline. And we just have to position our, our institutions and organizations to be those organizations that are worthy of support. And I think we also have to ask ourselves some questions about are there too many nonprofit institutions in this country? Yes. Is there too much duplication in various sectors? Yes. Are we utilizing donors' investments properly? And that's not about overhead, but that is about all these different kinds of organizations doing the same kind of work in the same space, probably. So maybe mm-hmm. a, a slight decline in the number of nonprofits won't be the worst thing either because they're not as effective in solutions. And it may not be the most effective use of donors' funds. And that's so interesting. And I'm seeing, and I'm sure you are too, more leading philanthropists say, I will fund a project that you do with another organization. Let's get you guys talking. You're doing such similar things that segue smoothly. So it'll be interesting to see how, you know, if it's the donors that inform the future or if it's the nonprofits that guide the path that they're on. And probably it'll be the donors, especially now. I think so. I think so. Closing question for you is I always end my podcast with an opportunity for the guests to give a spotlight or shout out to something or someone else. Is there any nonprofit or corporation or individual that you found very inspiring that you want to spotlight at this time? I would just say it's your hometown. I just say that the shout out, I hate to do this because we have so many clients and they're all so great with us. But National Jewish Health has been right at the forefront of this in Denver, the tip of the spear. They developed COVID testing, and they've developed drive-through testing, and they've really been out front of this. And National Jewish Health is the nation's leading respiratory hospital. 
And this is going to be a long-term health issue, Lens, that, you know, if you had COVID-19 and you recovered, you might have some lung issues longer term. Uh, mm. That's unknown. We don't know and that, it's right? It's going to be a place like National Jewish, which really specializes in respiratory ailments around lung, COPD. That is going to be at the forefront of this for a long time. So mm. they do just great work in terms of academic medicine. They're a small organization, but they are small but mighty. And I mm. give them a shout out because it's just great. And, you know, it's just great knowing in our back of, uh, neck of the woods that having these great institutions like UCSF Medical Center, California Pacific Medical Center, Alameda Health System, San Francisco mm. General Hospital, having these wonderful healthcare organizations, many of whom we've worked with and are working with, is quite reassuring. Mm, yeah, that's great. That's great. I love that shout out. So Rick, you and I have had a lot of fun. We've had a lot of laughter and we've worked on good projects together over the years. I want to tell you how much I really, I'm so grateful that you joined today and I love the work you're doing and you know, keep guiding us forward. Well, thank you for having me. I love these podcasts. This is an inspired oh. idea. So I will speak with you soon, but thanks for having me, Lens. Sounds good. All right, Rick, have a great day. You too. Talk to you thank later. You. Bye-bye. With this latest valuable episode, we'd love to thank you for joining us on the Creating Community for Good podcast. If you found today's show valuable, simply visit our website, creatingcommunityforgood.com to leave a review as well as to get access to additional resources and relevant links from this show. Stay tuned for more episodes.